0: Hey there, and welcome to season two of Navigating the Pandemic, the show that explores COVID-19 and how it impacts our daily lives. I'm Kat, an incoming Master of Public Health candidate at Columbia University. As a reminder, this season is focused on the social determinants of health, our health systems, and COVID-19. In the last episode, we talked about urban farming and cultivating a food-secure post-pandemic future. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Katherine Bliss, Senior Fellow and Director of Immunizations and Health Systems Resilience at the Global Health Policy Center at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. We're going to talk about Latin American healthcare systems before, during, and beyond the pandemic and recommendations to build back better and improve system resiliency in response to COVID. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Bliss. Well,
1: thank you for having me.
0: So would you open by sharing a little bit about your background, your current roles at the Global Health Policy Center, and your research focus?
1: Sure. Um, No, It's really a pleasure to be here, and I am a historian by background. I started my career uh, with a focus on gender politics and public health in Mexico, and after finishing my PhD, I was on the faculty at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, teaching undergraduate and graduate courses and working on completing a book that came out of my dissertation, looking at public health campaigns around syphilis and sexual commerce in post revolutionary Mexico City in the period kind of the 1920s and 30s. And it was in the course of that work that I became interested in the history of family planning policies in Mexico really from the period of the 1930s to the 1970s. But I knew that I wanted to do historical analysis that could be relevant for contemporary policymakers, people who were looking at issues around reproductive health and reproductive rights in the the 1990s. You know, to think about how I might place that historical analysis in contemporary perspective, I wound up doing a postdoctoral fellowship in population and development studies, and then a few years later, I did another fellowship that was supported through the Council on Foreign Relations, and that placed me at the U.S. Department of State for a year. Now, I had applied to the fellowship to be placed at the United Nations and focus on reproductive health programs in Latin America, but I wound up at the State Department and started out working on foreign policy approaches to bioterrorism, and then wound up working on U.S. engagement on international water sanitation and hygiene issues. So it was, it was a bit of a shift of focus. Focus there really through collaborations with the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, the Environmental Protection Agency, APAHO, the Pan American Health Organization, I was able to support a number of partnerships on water treatment and water safety in Latin America and the Caribbean. And eventually, though. I wanted to get back to a greater focus on research, and so I joined the Center for Strategic and International Studies, uh, where I work in the Global Health Policy Center, and since I've been here, I've worked in both the Americas program, which really takes kind of a look at U.S. uh, foreign policy within the Western Hemisphere, and also the Global Health Policy Center, and I currently lead our work on immunizations and primary health care, really trying to understand the ways that current thinking, both within the U.S. government and within the global community around those two issues, around immunizations and vaccines, as well as access to healthcare at the community level, are connected to the broader discussion around health security. So that's where I am.
0: Thank you so much for that overview. Um, You've clearly had a lot of very impactful roles And I also appreciate how your background in history has shaped your perspective and how you look at politics and culture and research in global and public health challenges. And I also think it's fascinating, just as a side note, how so many people in global health have these really incredible multidisciplinary backgrounds um, and have been able to work in a lot of different global health challenges. So it's
1: not necessarily a straight line. (laughs) That's for sure.
0: As an early career professional myself, it's so validating to hear that you have that flexibility and you, you really can do all of it. Um, so jumping into our discussion on Latin American healthcare systems, in a column for the Latin American advisor, you said even before the pandemic, many countries in the region struggled to prioritize primary health care. So, obviously, there were pre pandemic deficiencies in health systems in the Americas that needed to be addressed before the onset of COVID. And I was wondering if you could give the audience some context and profile the pre pandemic state of healthcare systems in Latin America.
1: Sure. Um, so, you know, I'm a historian. Uh, so, I'll take the long view and then talk a little bit about what's happened more recently. You know so in the long term, really looking over the past 100, 150 years, there really has been an extraordinary amount of international collaboration and really focus on health-related research and development in the region of, of Latin America and the Caribbean. You, know, you have PAHA, the Pan American Health Organization, which was originally founded as the Pan American Sanitary Board, which predates the World Health Organization. Even earlier than that, of course, there were cross-border initiatives on yellow fever and other outbreaks that really brought countries together to talk about port sanitation and migration and, and issues of common interest. And it, certainly into the 20th century, I mean, the region, you know, really had considerable success with immunization programs. You know, being one of the first to eliminate polio worldwide, eliminating measles and rubella, improving infant survival, decreasing maternal mortality, and certainly addressing some of the, the infectious diseases of concern, such as malaria and more recently HIV. You know, and really several countries have more recently in the 21st century, been recognized as having reached a kind of universal health coverage, meaning that a high percentage of the population is deemed or sort of recognized as having access to a set of essential, affordable quality health services. And these include Mexico, Brazil, and Costa Rica, for example, have been recognized in recent decades. You know, I think it's important to note that there were a lot of cracks in the system even before the pandemic. First of all, there was considerable inequality in terms of access to services between rural and urban sectors, between wealthy states and poor states in countries like Brazil, Mexico, and Argentina that have a federal structure. And historically, indigenous and Afro-descendant populations within the region had health indicators far worse than most populations of European descent. And you know, a lot of these inequities really date to the 19th century and even earlier to the colonial period when hospitals were set up for different populations. And it could be diff- difficult for people of African descent to gain access to training in medicine or surgery. And really through the 19th century into the 20th century, in many places, popular or traditional medical approaches did not really have a place within the existing health system. You know, while politically, countries in the region had endorsed the ideals of health for all from the conference at alma Ata in 1978, and of course, more recently in Astana with the the concept that primary health care is the best path for reaching universal health coverage and really achieving that sustainable development goal target around UHC, many countries in the region had not really invested enough in in public health and primary health care in recent years. So PAHO, for example, has recommended countries spend um, a certain amount, you know, on public health so that, that countries can, you know, really begin to appropriate national finances to community health and you know, the, to really build out the aspects of the health system. But but that wasn't really happening. And and so even before the pandemic, you know, there was evidence that that some of the the immunization programs that had achieved, you know, some of the firsts around eliminating polio and and other diseases, some of those immunization programs were already really under threat. Uh, We saw that coverage of the three doses of the diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis, Vaccine uh, dropped region-wide from like 93% in 2012 to about 80 in 2019, right before the pandemic. And, you know, really pointing to significant vulnerabilities for, for outbreaks and protection of, of child health. You know, I'd say even at this, so at the same time that some of these cracks in terms of equitable access to services and investment in some of the basic services around community health, for example, you know, we're, were taking shape. We also saw that the successes of the the 20th century, reducing high fertility, ensuring that women have access to, to family planning if they desire it, and also some of the programs, you know, really dealing with infectious diseases, as those successes took shape, they also kind of gave way to challenges dealing with aging populations, for example. And some of the chronic non-communicable diseases like diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and cancer, which in a lot of countries have really come to dominate the health landscape.
0: Yeah, that's all really interesting. And to continue the thread, you opened with that really great overview of PAHO and have built on that. I saw that they released a survey, I want to say last December, that showed around 46% of countries in the Americas at that time had reported a significant disruption in health service delivery. And with all of this great background you've just provided, like with that purview, it's not surprising at all. I mean, I think it's obvious that there's inequality in access to care. We see that, you know, in the United States, it's not just a Latin American thing, particularly as that is tied as a remnant of colonialism. I think it's important to note that for listeners. Yeah, I, I just think that There are so many pre-pandemic issues that, as we're about to discuss, become exacerbated by COVID-19. And so moving forward with that, would you speak to how the economic and political instability that has been sort of exacerbated by COVID and how these pre-existing issues that you just discussed, how have they impacted health infrastructure during the pandemic from resource allocation to maybe the inequalities that we discussed to personnel staffing, all of these issues. I know that's a really broad question, but I want to throw it at you and and would love to hear what you have to say. Well,
1: I mean, as you pointed out, over the past two years, the region has really experienced significant economic shocks, along with with political protests, and not just around government's response to the pandemic, but really uh, people have come together to express frustration with ongoing uh, challenges around security and around access to to work and other kinds of access to social services. So I think it's important to remember that there were pre-existing economic and political challenges before the pandemic, and that these were driven in large part by the growing inequality in a region where the population has long struggled with inequitable access to, to those resources and services. And across the region, there's really a very large informal work sector. It's, it varies from country to country. And you know, this means that there are a lot of people who often don't count on formal health insurance because they, they don't work in the private sector or for a government agency. And so when things shut down in 2020, Many people who had left rural areas for work in urban centers found themselves without work or or means to stay home and quarantine, you know, or they had to give up the homes that they could no longer afford and return to home villages. So there was a lot of mobility and people being uprooted and seeking health care in people became sick or moved and had to look for care elsewhere there was you know a great deal of of pressure on the health system from a considerable amount of population shift and and moving you know people really um, settling themselves in in different parts of countries you know we know there was already a shortage of health workers before the pandemic, uh, and we had seen that in many countries, trained personnel who had the opportunity were migrating out of the region uh, to find work in North America or in Europe uh, or dropping out of the workforce altogether because of either a, a sense of, of frustration at working conditions or at the, the compensation and, and pay that, that they could expect. Um, And of course, in recent years, there had been numerous projects focusing on improving access to education in the region, but the closure of schools and universities in many ways exacerbated inequalities. And that includes access of, of people who were training to be part of the workforce as well. People living in the forest quintiles really had no access to digital tools, laptops or iPads or other kinds of ways to study remotely. And, you know, if they were lucky, they could use a cell phone to kind of tap out answers to homework questions. And so, you know, we've really seen already before the pandemic, there was a shortage of of health workers and educational, you know, training and opportunities have suffered a setback over the course of the pandemic itself. At the same time, there was a great deal of population movement and people. You know, really becoming uprooted from their homes in urban centers, particularly the informal sector or informal workers who didn't count on formal healthcare and and put additional pressures on ill-resourced hospital and and healthcare facilities. And so, at the same time, you know what we saw were hospitals uh, struggling to rapidly convert space to intensive care units and uh, rapidly try to outfit themselves with personal protective equipment for um, for staff. But in many cases, there weren't enough staff to support those hospitals and there weren't enough resources to really accommodate the population that was, was coming to depend on them. So, really a number of important challenges that were pre-existing but then became exacerbated in the context of considerable mobility and just the the need to to try to pivot to uh, address the crisis of covid which then at the same time of course left gaps in terms of coverage uh, related to other kinds of, of care including immunizations infectious diseases other infectious diseases beyond covid such as tuberculosis and other others. And then, of course, the longer term challenges of care related to chronic diseases, chronic non-communicable diseases, where in many cases, people, you know, really just had to kind of forego care during the some of the worst phases of the pandemic, when all resources were really focused on the crisis response.
0: This really does seem to be a very multifaceted problem. And I'm going to try to recap. It sounds like it's population mobility and movement, and workforce challenges, and um, educational opportunity, and how that translates into access to technology. These seem like some really critical factors that people maybe wouldn't traditionally think about as being directly related to a healthcare system. And it's really important to think about that and, and realize that it's not just the overburdened hospital or the lack of access to PPE or overstaffed healthcare providers, which are definitely problems. But there are so many things that wouldn't be obvious maybe to the average person that really play into this issue. And so looking to the future, how do you think we can improve the resiliency of Latin American healthcare systems. Do you have any ideas of what should be on our global pandemic preparedness agenda to build back better?
1: Well, I think one of the areas that is really important to recognize is that investments in primary healthcare, that is the delivery of an essential, a set of essential health services at the community level by People who are known and trusted in the community has really been shown to have helped many of the communities that had made those investments, whether the pandemic in being able to maintain health services for their populations. It's not to say that the investment in primary health care meant that those countries were exempt from the worst of COVID, the number of infections or mortality, but that they having those investments and that trust at the community level enabled them to both accommodate a crisis response and continue to address uh, many of the, the ongoing health challenges of the populations they serve in an effective way. And so you know, for countries in the region, committing to provide at least 30% of public health financing to primary health care can help kind of shore up the the kinds of local level community health workers for groups of 5 or 6,000 people you know really that kind of scale can can be helpful in ensuring that resources are available at the local level a second is Continuing to invest in training and retaining skilled health personnel, as we talked about earlier, there was already a shortage of skilled health workers before the pandemic, but we've seen even more leave the profession out of burnout and frustration, and we're seeking opportunities elsewhere. And so not only taking advantage of some of the tools that have really been deployed to great effect during the pandemic, the kind of digital training and not requiring people to have to take a week off from work and travel to a central location and stay in a hotel and have a, a training, but really Investing in ways to provide skilled health personnel with the kinds of training that they need in the place where they are uh, and with skills that they can use not only to address health challenges, but also to improve their own professional prospects and development is, is really important so that you have a skilled and resilient workforce in place. I think that's sort of a second issue. A third is making better use of data, collecting the data, analyzing the data, and then really using that data to monitor for quality of care and importantly, equitable access to services. We know that over the course Of this pandemic, it's become possible to collect information about infection rates and vaccine purchases and vaccine distribution uh, almost in real time. And there are trackers everywhere, all over the internet, where you can look at all this different kind of information. But we need to find ways to collect information about trends and resources and the use of those resources and the outcomes that they produce. At the community and local level, make sure that that is being analyzed and the trends are are being examined at the district, regional, and national levels, in order to ensure that the kinds of investments that are being made are resulting in quality of care, are resulting in better health outcomes, and importantly, in that equitable access to services that we saw was really becoming quite a struggle in even in the years uh, prior to the pandemic. And you know, I guess I would also talk about. A couple of of other issues. One is to really continue to focus on strengthening regional research and development capabilities. You know, there's there's a considerable wealth of training and expertise across the universities and laboratories and research centers across the region, and it's really important to continue to strengthen those programs and to invest in research partnerships between researchers within the region and different countries, but internationally as well, to ensure that those researchers are part of a robust international network and that they remain part of it. Um, But it's also, I think, really important to expand the possibilities for regional manufacturing of vaccines, diagnostics, and therapeutics, whether for COVID-19 or for, for other infectious diseases and potential pandemic threats. Again, putting my historian (laughs) focus on during the period of the 1950s and 1960s under uh, what were called import substitution industrialization policies uh, that were really meant to kind of provide national level expertise rather than countries having to import certain products. Many countries in the region adopted these ISI policies, and a lot of countries did have their own pharmaceutical manufacturing capabilities. And a lot of that over the period of the 80s and 90s with different economic approaches and restructuring went away. And uh, yet there still remains a very strong regional R&D capacity. And it's important to continue to identify opportunities for building uh, the bridge between R&D and the manufacturing so that there's greater production of some of those products for pandemic response at the regional level, uh, and that the region can really uh, respond to to the challenges that the countries themselves are experiencing and develop responses that are that are tailored and context you know, and important for the context as well.
0: So, I want to quickly jump in and share, um, based on your earlier point, World Health Worker Week is coming up. It's April fourth through eighth. So as Dr. Bliss just discussed, it's critical that we value the important role that these people have played in pandemic response. So tweet, post on LinkedIn, whatever your social media platform is, go thank somebody with a mask on. It's a really important week. So keep that on your agenda. And then also as an anthropologist myself, I really appreciated what you had to say about the importance of culturally relevant and locally based community health for like financing and interventions the idea of investing in and maintaining health services at the community level really should be by the stakeholders and for the stakeholders because it shouldn't be like a prescriptive focus. And I also loved what you had to say about regional R&D. And we're sort of seeing how that's being supported now in South Africa. So hopefully we'll see how that translates into Latin America in coming months. And finally, just to follow up on your point about public health data, I want to remind interested listeners to check out episode five of Navigating the Pandemic because we have an episode on demystifying COVID-19 public health data. But this is definitely, as you'll learn in that episode and as we've talked about in this episode, an area that we need more expertise in and more people working on that. Wow. Thank you so much, Dr. Bliss, for sharing your expertise on the show today.
1: Well, thank you very much. It's, It's great to talk with you.
0: I really hope y'all found today's episode on health systems resiliency really interesting. I know I did. Check out the show description for a recent PAHO piece on coordinated action needed to strengthen health systems. And I also added a link from PAHO's health systems resilience event from last summer. You can watch recordings of presentations in both Spanish and English. I highly recommend you check that out. And finally, another reminder that World Health Worker Week is April 4th through 8th. So to close the show, I have some really incredible news to share. Navigating the Pandemic was nominated for Best Health Podcast in the Cool Podcasting Awards. I'm really, really grateful to everybody that supported the show and so excited to see where it leads. So thank you for listening, and whatever platform you listen on, turn on notifications for the podcast and share this episode with your peeps. As always, stay safe and stay well. All the best, Kat.